but I was at, at most six years old, and I had decided to climb that tree in our front yard. And as I reached up for a higher branch to go up, I missed it, and I went down, and I went down right into the center of the tree and got wedged. And I could not reach anything at all to get out. I was stuck in that tree. And I was um, just overwhelmed by it and became afraid. And no one was around to see me. And what I did, um, and I remember it as if it were yesterday, I cried out with my loudest voice, help me, Jesus, help me. And I never have prayed a more sincere prayer than what I prayed at that time. I, I was really um, upset. Well, my mom heard my prayer from inside, and she came running out and helped me. And you will not convince me that the Lord did not use her as his angel to help me out of that situation. But it is true that our prayers do say a lot about us. And when we look at Nehemiah 9, 1 through 37, this is the longest prayer recorded in the Bible outside of the book of Psalms. And it is the people's plea for help, the people of Israel, as they plea for God's help um, for them. And yet, as we'll look at this prayer, we'll see that the focus is more on the mighty deeds of God than it is on the people's needs. And the people, as they pray, they think about who God is. They think about what God has done for his people in the past. And they recognize that the God who has been faithful to save his people in past times is the God who is faithful today and faithful forever to his people. And as we look at this, it communicates a a sense of their sorrow. It shows us their confession of sin, and it shows their humility before God while at the same time showing loyalty to him. And the people recognize just how mighty God is and how amazing God is that he answers the prayers of his people and that he shows kindness to them, a people who has repeatedly been unfaithful to him. The prayer reveals their belief in a faithful God, one who has been faithful to their fathers and one who has done mighty things to save their ancestors, and they know that this same God is able to save them. I think of the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, we do not pray because we doubt we pray because we believe. And when we look at this prayer, we see the belief of the people of God in their God, that he is a saving God, and that they can trust in his salvation. There are two basic parts to this prayer, one very short and one rather lengthy. But the first five verses give us the prayer of confession that they bring, and the, the next verses from chapter, verse 6 all the way through verse 37 show us uh, the salvation that they are trusting in from God. So let's look first of all of this prayer of confession. And as we look at this, 
what I want us to keep in mind is what can we learn from this prayer about asking for God's help? How should we approach God when we ask for his help? And so as we look at this, the first thing we see is they express their humility before God. Look at verse 1, if you will, please. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. In the ancient Near East, and this wasn't just an Israelite thing, this was something that was seen throughout the various cultures in that day, to express humility, to express a sense of repentance and desire for forgiveness People would fast, they would do without food, they would put on sackcloth, and ashes would be put over their heads, and sometimes dirt over their heads. And this was connected with their mourning and repentance over the sins in their lives and their desperation for God to forgive them. They desperately wanted God's attention and help. And this was their way of expressing it. Now, it's interesting. We need to note that there are plenty of times when we see in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, where the people of God did this sort of thing, and they used it as a way to try to manipulate God. They thought that if they just did these things, that God would would bless them and that God would be good to them. And uh, God, many times we see, or or a number of times, anyhow, we see where God says, I don't want your sackcloth and ashes. I don't want you doing that. What I want is true repentance. What I want is a, a, a true heart that seeks to do what is right and a life that lives that out. And so let's understand that just the action itself, there, there was nothing in it that made God answer their prayer. Although, again, we see examples of people trying to do that. But what we do see is when the heart truly is humble before God, and when the heart really is moved by the need and desperation of God's forgiveness and God's action in their lives, this outward expression was a demonstration of what was going on inside of them and what their true love and devotion was for God. And there's something very powerful in this message when done with sincerity. And so the people were truly sorry for their sin, and they submitted to God, humbled themselves before God, and they were very serious understanding their need for God's help. The first thing we need to understand that when we truly are asking God for help is that we need to recognize that we desperately need his help. And that we need his help first and foremost in cleansing us of our sin. And that we are sinners and that we do not approach him in any way. But as the people of God, as the church, we approach him through the blood of Jesus Christ, our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shed his blood, who offered himself as a sacrifice for us, and that we are in desperate need of his cleansing and continued cleansing. Yes, we have once and for all been cleansed of our sins, and yet at the same time, we need the ongoing grace of God's work 
in our lives that comes from that sacrifice that Christ made for us. And there is not a flippancy that is shown among the people of God when it comes to repentance, when it comes to confession of sin. It's not something that we take lightly because we remember the price that was paid for the cleansing of our sin. We remember that it is Jesus Christ, God's son, who gave his life for us so that we might have the cleansing of sin, so that we do have a high priest who mediates for us and advocates for us before God, and this should never be taken lightly by the people of God. There needs to be an expression of understanding of the great depth of God's love, but also the great depth of his sacrifice to do what he did. It is beyond my understanding. I cannot comprehend how God could love us, could love me, could love you so much that he would give his son to die in our place for our sins so that we might be made the righteousness of God and that we might have access to God in prayer. And that should bring for us a sense of confidence for sure, but it should also bring to us always a continued humility that it is Christ who has done this for us and it is not we ourselves. And so there was humility as they expressed their need to God, as they approached him. Also, they professed their loyalty to God. Look at verse 2. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. Now, this is not an act of arrogance. It's not an act of saying we want nothing to do with anyone else. We're just going to stay to ourselves and, and be with ourselves. This idea of being separated from foreigners was a public profession of their loyalty and obedience to God because of what they knew about God's word. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, the Lord God commanded Israel, saying, Thus you are to be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. To be devoted to the Lord also meant separating themselves from the religious practices of the unbelieving peoples around them, that they did not stand in the same place with these people when it came to their beliefs about their gods, but they separated themselves from them and said, there is only one God and we will worship him alone and we will not be a part of your, your sacrifices to your gods and your, the high places that you have. We will be devoted to Yahweh. We will be devoted to the Lord and none other. And thus, we see with devotion there is an aspect of separation. And was this a problem in this time? It certainly was because Ezra, we read about him last week in chapter 8 as he read the scriptures to the people. When Ezra first came to Jerusalem, he encountered the people's sin of failing to separate themselves from foreigners. And instead, they had been marrying foreigners and allowing their sons to marry foreign women. You say, what's wrong with this? Because what was wrong with this is that this led to the practice of idolatry, which led to the exile in the first place. And let's understand again the history of this. That what happened is the people of God 
had been involved in idolatry really off and on, and more on than off it seems, from the very beginning of their heading into the promised land. And yet, as we look at this, God would, would bring discipline upon them, but he was faithful to them. But through Moses, he told them that your, your unfaithfulness to me is going to lead to exile, where you will be taken from the land that is your promised land, the land of inheritance that I've given you, and I will take you among the nations, and you will be dispersed among the nations, and this will be the ultimate punishment for your unfaithfulness to the Lord. So what happens? Moving forward, we see in uh, 722 BC, there were 10 tribes to the north, and they had separated from the south. And what happens to them because of their ongoing wickedness in worshiping other gods, God finally, after about 200 years of being, being patient with them, he sent them into exile. And then Judah also had been unfaithful. The southern kingdom, for which two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, which became a part of Judah, they were faithful, but not very long. And they too fell into the same thing as the northern kingdom, and God sent them into exile as well. And they were 70 years in exile. And then we have a, a man named Zerubbabel who was a a descendant of David who led a group back to Jerusalem in 536, 37 BC. And then we have another group that comes, and they are led by Ezra. And then we have another group that comes, and it's the group that was led by Nehemiah. And they have been in exile under the bondage of the Assyrians and then Babylonians, and here the Babylonians with Judah, and now they finally returned. What got this to happen, what caused this to happen? It goes all the way back to their idolatry, and a major part of their idolatry was marrying into families that were idolatrous. And this is not about ethnicity, it is about loyalty to the Lord, and an undivided loyalty to the Lord. The Apostle Paul speaks to this. In 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18, he says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, <clears throat> just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty." Paul exhorted believers to be separate from the world so they might guard and profess their loyalty to Christ and in so doing, remain pure. And by the way, not only is this right and good for believers, in my own experience, I've seen this to be right and good for unbelievers. I remember my first pastorate, a young lady that I had 
grown up with her family. She was younger than me, so I didn't know her quite as well, but I knew her family very well. And um, when I started pastoring, she was going to college in the same town and started uh, attending our church. And she came up to me one day and said, there's this, this guy I've met at school, and uh, I, I want to date him, but he's an unbeliever. What do you think? I took her to what Paul said here. I said, the Lord says that we're not to be um, entangled with unbelievers and that you shouldn't be doing this. We, we should pray for him. We should love him, but you don't need to be dating him with thinking toward the possibility of marriage. Well, did she listen to me? Well, of course not. But more importantly, she didn't listen to the word of God. And she went ahead and married this man. What happened? Seems like a happy ending because soon after that, he comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all well and good. Wonderful, right? No, no. It got much worse. The Lord actually called him into ministry. And he, wanted, he believed that God had called him to be a pastor. And he was ready to go to seminary and wanting to do whatever God called him to do. And you know what she said? You can go. I'm not going with you. You do whatever you think God wants you to do. I'm not going. So if you think you're going to whatever seminary it is, you're on your own because I have not been called to do that myself. And I don't want to even be a pastor's wife. Another church I pastored, the second church, two out of three. The second church, though, I pastored. Met a couple. That we started, it was a new church um, growth start. It was basically a church that had died, and we had property, and um, two couples, and three ladies that were widows, and that's what we started out with. And as we were doing this, one of those couples, I found out that... They had married when she was a believer and he was an unbeliever, but they married. He soon after came to Christ. He was a deacon in our church, a very godly man. And what happened? She did not appreciate his commitment to Christ. And it went so far that she was unfaithful to him, left him and their what, five-year-old little boy and went off her way because she could not stand his, as I quote her, his Puritan ways of living um, before God. So I will tell you this. If you're an unbeliever here today, don't even get attached with a believer. Because if you're getting attached with a believer and that believer will attach with you, they're living in disobedience to God. And that's no good for you, let me tell you. And so they're showing their loyalty. They're saying that we're not going to be attached to them we're going to do what's right because we want to be faithful to Yahweh. And we are not going to, to mix with these other people who are unbelievers. We're going to be faithful. Also, they stress their, the importance of God's word. Look at verse 3. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. For six hours, they stood and listened to the reading of God's word. And so as they began to make their prayer, it, be, it began first with the listening of God's word. 
people who are serious about asking for God's help will be serious about God's word. And this is exactly what we find with these people. The psalmist indicates this as well. In Psalm 119, verses 9 through 12, how can a man, young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Why should believers do this? The Apostle Paul speaks of this in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. If you were a student of mine at Southern Seminary in an Old Testament survey class, you would not leave that class if you attended it. You would not leave this class without hearing this verse a number of times. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. What's interesting among us as Southern Baptists, in my experience, we've been very strong with advocating that the word of God is the inspired word of God, and it is. What seems to be tragic in some of the people I see is that we stop reading there. Because not only is it inspired by God, but all scripture is profitable. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The person who cares about God and, and wants to hear from God and seeks his help is the person who recognizes the importance of God's word in their lives, and it is the person who submits themselves to God's word and understands that all of Scripture is profitable. And if we want to know what is right and how to think right, and we want to understand what is incorrect thinking, and we want to be careful of incorrect behavior, and we want to know how to behave rightly, then it is the word of God that will teach us these things for every believer. And God has given us his word to help us with this. The one who truly repents and confesses of his or her sin is concerned with how they think and how they behave, and they are concerned that as they think and behave, it honors the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the person who is serious about seeking God's help. Notice also they confess their sins to God. Look at the last part of verse 3. They read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and then for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. So for six hours, they listened to the reading of God's word, and for another six hours then, what did they do? They confessed their sin before God, and they worshiped the Lord. This was who they were. And the literal statement in Hebrew is they confessed and bowed down. My translation says they worship, but it is literally they confessed and bowed down. They confessed their sin, and they bowed down in humility before God because they realized they were in desperate need of God's mercy and grace in their lives. Mercy not to give them what they do deserve, God's judgment, and grace to give them what they don't deserve, and that is God's compassion and kindness and blessing. And this is what they did. They confessed their sins and bowed down to the Lord for six hours. And it was the reading of God's word 
that was the catalyst to bring this about in their lives. What difference would it make today in the church among those of us who are believers, who, that is the church, if we spent more time in God's word and more time in prayer and confession and response to the preaching and teaching and reading of God's word. And that we really were serious about the implications of what God's word says and what we have been taught according to God's word. What difference would it make in the church today if the people of God responded to the word of God the way these people responded to the word of God? And we're serious about confessing sin and serious about coming before God and pleading for his help, recognizing that apart from him, we can do nothing. This is who they were. This is where, where they were in their relationship with the Lord. Notice also they blessed the name of their God. Look at verses 4 and 5. Now on the Levites' platform stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, Chenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. O may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. What are they doing here? They're praying for the blessing of God, that his glorious name would be blessed and that he would be exalted above all blessing and praise. What are they seeking to be here? They are seeking to be a blessing to God themselves. What would happen again if today the people of God were more concerned about being a blessing to God than receiving God's blessing? But how many of us are stuck on this idea, oh, God, bless me, bless me, bless me, and we want God's blessing when what God really wants in our hearts is our desire to be a blessing to him. And when we are a blessing to him, how, how could he hold anything back from his children whose sole desire is to be a blessing to God? But what we do, we say, God, give me this, bless me with this, help us with this. And there's nothing wrong with asking for God's blessing and help. No, there's nothing. And they're asking for it here in this prayer. But it comes from the heart of a people who understand what they want is to be a blessing to God. And they want him to be blessed and him to be honored and him to be praised above all other blessing, honor, and praise. And that is the heart of a people who knows how to ask God for what they need. It comes from the people whose heart's desires to be a blessing to the Lord. Isn't it interesting? Our Lord Jesus Christ was a man of prayer. And, the, and his disciples, they saw him. And when they saw his prayer life, and then they saw how God answered his prayers, and, and they saw how he blessed the, a few loaves and fishes and, and fed thousands, and they saw all these miracles that God would ask for his father's help, and, and his father would respond, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. 
And what maybe we need to get is that Jesus also said that his food was to do what? The work of his father. In other words, his whole life was about blessing his father and living for him. And yes, he is, was, and is the son of God. But it is the prayer of one who seeks to be a blessing to God. It is that person who has the ear of God when they pray. And so this is how they went about this. And so, out of this, we see the longer part of this prayer. And you would think, well, okay, the longest part is their prayer for salvation, so the longest part's about them. That's just not so. Because as we continue, we see that the rest of this prayer, for the most part, is they're recognizing who God is. They are praising him. They are recognizing him. And as they talk about being a blessing and that he's deserving of all blessing, then they recognize why he is deserving of all blessing. And what do we see here? First of all, we see that they recognize the power of God in creation. Look at verse 6. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of, the, of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. The people of God, as they come to God to ask for his help, they recognize the power of God in creation, that he is the creator that he is over all things. And in this, they recognize the sovereignty of God, that he is the one who rules the heavens and the earth because he is the creator. Let's understand this. In Genesis 1.1, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that's more than just the statement about origins, where we came from. It is a statement of authority because when he says, I have created this, it belongs to me. I can do with my creation whatever I please to do with it. It is amazing throughout the prophets. He'll be, the Lord will be through his prophets saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and this is going to happen. And then in the middle of it, it almost seems like it's out of place. He'll say something like, am I not the God who created the heavens and the earth? And you're like, where did that come from? And then you realize, oh, Two things at least. He has the power to do what he says he's going to do. And secondly, he has the right because it belongs to him. And so they recognize this. They recognize he is the creator. He is able to answer their prayer. And he has all authority over all creation to do whatever he wills to do. And they recognize this about him. He is the source and sustainer of life. There is no one else. He is the sovereign ruler of all creation. There is no one else. They recognized also the power of God in his election, his choosing his people. Look at verse, verses 7 and 8. You are the Lord God who chose Abram, and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees, and gave him the name Abraham. 
you found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite and of the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Girgashite to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. The people recognize that the Lord God is the one who graciously chose Abraham to bring him into covenant relationship with him. And by faith, Abraham left his home. He followed God's direction to a new land. And God took care of him and and made a covenant with him and said that I will be faithful to you and your descendants. And so he changed his name from Abram, which meant exalted father, to Abraham, the father of a multitude. And then we see in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, The Lord says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a land. And I'm going to do all these things so that you will be a blessing to the nations, you and your seed, you and your descendants. I have chosen you to be a blessing to the nations. And he says it twice in three verses to emphasize that this is why God has chosen Abraham to be his servant, that Abraham and his descendants were to be a blessing to the nations, to restore the blessing that was lost in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned against God. And so this is his promise. And we see this is reiterated in Genesis 15. God says that I'm going to take responsibility. This is my covenant I'm making with you. And I will be responsible to make sure that this covenant comes to pass. Now, did he expect Abraham to be faithful? Absolutely. But what he says is, I'm the one that's going to make this happen. I will take responsibility to make sure what I have promised is going to come to pass. In Genesis 17, he indicates that this is an eternal covenant. In Genesis 18 and 22, he continues with speaking of this concerning the descendants of Abraham and that they are part of this. And then we come forward to Galatians chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul states, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs to the promise. And so we are God's chosen people because God chose Abraham. And in Christ, we are heirs to the promises made to Abraham, who first heard the gospel preached, according to Paul in Galatians 3. And so, as we look at their prayer, they recognize the graciousness, the kindness of God to choose them to be his people, to bless them so that they might be a blessing to the nations. We must understand this. We need to understand that God has saved us because of his love for us. Just as we, we read earlier in Deuteronomy. I love that passage in Deuteronomy. Because the Lord says, I love you because I love you. That's the reason right there. Why does the Lord love Israel? He, he loves them because he loves them. What more reason does he need? He loves them because he loves them. And it's by his grace that he has chosen us, that he loves his people. And he loves us. And so it is a blessing to us to be the people of God, to be saved by grace through faith, 
through Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, we have not just been saved so that we could be blessed. We have been saved as heirs of the covenant that God established first with Abraham and the promises he made to Abraham that we would be a blessing to the nations. Ultimately, this is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But let's understand this. What does Jesus say? As the Father has sent me, what? So send I you. And he says that we are, that all authority has been given to him. Therefore, what? Go into all the world and make disciples. And so we are heirs of the promise, and we are also heirs of the mission. And they understood that it was by God's grace that all this came about for the people of God. They also recognized the power of God in redemption. Look at verses 9 through 11. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them. So they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground and their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. There are five elements we see concerning redemption in the Old Testament, especially at the Red Sea. One, the redemption of his people, of God's people, is accomplished by God himself. He's the one that did this. He's the one that did all these great works in Egypt. He's the one that parted the Red Sea and allowed his people to walk across dry ground. He's the one that brought those waters down upon their enemy and completely destroyed them. He alone is the Redeemer. He alone is the Savior. Also, it was a redemption from bondage and oppression into covenant relationship with God as sons and daughters. Sons and daughters of God. This is why he has made his people, those who were in bondage to sin, now they are heirs of the kingdom. They are royalty in Christ Jesus, children of God. And also this redemption was accomplished, that this redemption which God accomplished, he accomplished it through a man, a man that God raised up, a man that he preserved, a man that he chose, a man that he called, a man that he commissioned and empowered, and this man was Moses, and God chose this man to use this man for his purposes, for the redemption of his people. He used him as an instrument of blessing for his very people and leading them as he did this work of redemption. And it was a redemption <clears throat> that created an everlasting relationship between God and Israel. An everlasting relationship. It is an eternal covenant that God made with Abraham. That's why it's so important that we recognize that Jesus is a fulfillment of this covenant. Why should we remember this? Well, because it says so in the Old Testament, but you may not believe the Old Testament's all that important. So let's, let's go to your Bible, the New Testament. Because Matthew, the very first book in our New Testament, in the very first verse, 
He says, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's understood that the person and work of Christ is the fulfillment of all God's work that he has been doing from the very beginning to bring about the redemption of his people. And then Matthew follows up with this genealogy through the Old Testament to show God's faithfulness that while people had turned away from God and had turned to sin and rebellion, that all along God was about his purpose of bringing the redemption of his people through his son, Jesus Christ. And he fulfilled this in him. And so we see the power of God in redemption. And one more thing I'll say, that his redemption put an end to the enemies of God. When the waters parted, his people were able to flee. But God didn't leave them parted, did he? He brought them back, and he destroyed the threat that was upon them. Let me tell you, Satan may have some freedom to move around, but his days are numbered. Because the victory has already been won through Jesus Christ by his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension to the Father. And Satan's days are numbered. And we have a redemption where we know that our enemies, sin and death, Satan, the world, and our own sinful flesh, they will be once and for all dealt with through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so it was this memory of God's salvation at the Red Sea that gave them confidence to approach him with their need in the presence. Also, they recognized the power of God in his provision. And, and we'll not read this, but I do want to just highlight some of the things in verses 12 through 25. What did he provide for them? He provided his presence and guidance in verses 12 and 19. His instruction, verses 13 and 14 and verse 20. Food and water, verse 15, verses 20 and 21. God's patience, forgiveness, and compassion, verses 16 through 19. God's spirit to instruct them. God, and that's in verse 20. Clothing, in verse 21. Land, in verse 22. Strength in numbers, verse 23. Victories in battle, verse 24, fortified cities, homes, and abundance. God did all of these things, and he mentions that in verse 25. God did all of these things on behalf of his people, and they understood this. The God who has been faithfully good to his people is the same God who is faithfully good to his people and will always be faithfully good to his people, and they understood this. I think of the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We see in verses 26 through 35, they recognize the power of God in his compassion. And one of the great mysteries we see in the scriptures is the simultaneous coexistence of Israel's disobedience and rebellion to God and his discipline of his people, while at the same time graciously providing for them and patiently caring for them 
and even sending prophets one after another after another after another to warn them, and still they would not listen most often, and yet he was faithful to them at the same time. This is an extraordinary thing. And so we read in verse 32, Israel's God was the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness. I'll never forget, when I was a church planter, um, I taught bivocationally at a school, and and, uh, let's just say that most of the folks in that, it was a Christian school, um, largest Christian school in America at that time, but the they were, how should I say, theologically a little different from, from where most of us are. And uh, I told my class something and made a, uh, another teacher just irate with me because the students went and told him I said this. But I told them, there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. Because God's love for us is not dependent on what we do. There are a whole lot of people, like that teacher, who actually came up to me and had the audacity, I am better than other people, and God loves me more than he does other people. Well, there you go. How about that? No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. And I think that young person went to him and told him, because they'd never heard that before. That's why I was sharing. I was a math teacher, by the way, but I said that to him in the math class. We got some math done in the class as well. It was it's helpful, but, but I thought, I'm going to take my, my opportunities. And so, as we think about this, God's covenant with us as his church in Jesus Christ is completely based on the person and work of Jesus Christ and who he is and on nothing that we have done, are doing, or ever will do. And what a wonderful thing that is. I had a grandmother. I, my family, I did grow up in northeast Ohio, but my, my parents in north central Arkansas and the Boot Hill, Missouri. So uh, my accent's very different from almost the whole rest of my family. My grandmother, grandfather, we called him Mom and Paul. Can't get any more country than that, can you? Remember, we took a trip from the boot hill all the way up to Cleveland, and it was me and Maul in the back seat. And um, I said to Maul, I said, Maul, if you were to die today, do you know that you'd go to heaven? And she said, I hope so. And I remember as a little boy, it broke my heart. I said, Maul, the Bible says you can know so. You don't have to hope so. And I said, Jesus loves you, and he's faithful to his children. You don't have to hope. You can trust in his salvation. And I could get away with saying that. No one in the world could get away with talking to Maul like that but her little grandson. But I will never forget. She said to me, you know what? That may be true for you, but I just don't believe that's true for me. And i never forget that because I thought, we have a God who doesn't want us to live life with a hope so. He has given us the assurance of his son that we can know so. And we can rest assured in 
the covenant that he has established by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, that we can know we are secure as his people, those who by grace through faith have come to him. They also finally, in verses 36 and 37, they recognize the power of God in prayer, in supplication. I'm reminded of 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, I've said they, had a, they were asking God for help. What were they asking him for help for, with? The issue was this. God had done so many great things for them, but in truth, they were still under the domination of the Babylonian, or I'm sorry, of now the Persian Empire. So they had been historically under the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and now the Persians. And they're saying, Lord, you have done all these wonderful things for us. Please finish what you started. And the freedom that we long for, you have, you have saved us from from Babylon, you brought us back home. We long for that freedom to be complete. Where those who are still oppressing us, that you would remove them and that we would once and for all be free. I think about that prayer and I think about us today because the Lord has won the victory for us and we are secure in him. But we're living in a land and a world today that's still under the dominant power of the prince and power of the air. And we long for that day when the Lord will defeat all of our enemies once and for all, and it will be done. And we will see him face to face, and we will know him, and we will be made like him. And we long for that day. And we pray for that day. And just as they were longing for God to complete the work that he had begun, we pray that that would be the case as well. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Let me finish with just a few questions. What priority do you give to confession of sin in your life? Notice the priority they they gave to it. They gave priority to God's word, but that brought forth confession. When is the last time you took seriously the mighty acts of God that you witnessed in your life? I want to encourage you. You can get some time this week. Set aside some time and just, just begin to list things that you remember that God has done for you and how wonderful he has shown himself faithful to you over the years. And finally, what impact does knowledge of God's nearness to his children and hearing and answering prayer have on you? The Lord is near to his children to hear our prayers and to answer our prayers. Then why are we so prone to ignore the Lord and not pray? Let us remember that the Lord is near to his children and he is ready to answer our prayers. And let us learn from these folks in Nehemiah chapter 9 how we approach this God.
who loves us so dearly and is ready to answer our prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for this passage, the truth that you have shown that you are a God who is near to your people, that you are so awesome, that you are the creator, that you are over all things, that you are able to answer our prayers. God, that you are faithful, faithful to your people, faithful to your church, faithful to the covenant that you made through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice for us at Calvary. Father, help us, help us to recognize who you are and what you've done, and help us to remember that you are a God who is near to your children, and that you hear our cries, and that you're ready to answer. We pray these things in Jesus' name.